You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. On the 28th of February, the government announced its plans to introduce a new tax on super balances over $3 million from 25-26 onwards. However, how are these new rules proposed to work and what are the issues and strategies advisors need to be thinking about in the lead up to their introduction? My name is Kim Guest and here to discuss this important new development is Craig Day, head of the Festec team. Hello, Craig. Hey, Kim. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Excited, excited about three million dollar super <laughs> balancey something. All we can cap. talk about at the moment, mm, isn't it? It's it everywhere. Is, it is. It's quite interesting. Mm, it is. So, as we know, the government has announced this new tax on super for people with balances over three million dollars. Can you please give us a quick summary of how the rules are proposed to work before we get into some of the issues? Yeah. Okay. So, very generally, the government has basically announced that it's going to introduce a new three million what we think they're going to call a total super balance threshold something along those lines Mm -hmm. from 2025-26 and then to tax any earnings on those balances over three million dollars at an additional or at 15 percent so the other interesting thing to note about these rules though is the tax is actually going to be levied or assessed and levied on the individual, not on the super fund, right? But the member will have the option to either pay the tax liability themselves or to have it released from super. Okay, so that sounds a lot like Division 293 tax, doesn't it, where you know high income earners have to pay that additional 15% tax on some of their concessional contributions, um, but that additional tax is levied actually on the member and they can choose to pay it themselves or to have it taken out as superannuation. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's spot on. It's, it's actually proposed to work very much like the Division 293 tax system. So the liability is raised on the individual, um, not the super fund, uh, which means the impact on super funds is actually going to be pretty minimal. They'll have to do some extra reporting. And I think that's the whole design of this. They mm. they want to introduce this tax, but they don't want to do it in a way that will be very expensive for the industry. So in that situation, these funds or the funds will just continue to operate pretty much as they always have, and they won't need to change their systems for example, to attribute fund income to the different members and then to tax bits of that income at different rates depending on each member's circumstances, which all of which would be really, really complex for large funds at least to do um, and would actually cost come at an, an enormous cost. Um, you know, any sort of change to any sort of super fund admin tax accounting system, you know, a really small change costs a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. This is pretty much throwing it all out and starting it again. Um, And so therefore that would cost the industry an an awfully large amount of money to implement these rules, um, which would have to then be borne by all members equally, not just those members. So I think the government's looked for a solution here that is low cost Mm. rather than, you know, a perfect kind of solution, which, uh, which would require massive structural changes to the industry. Right. So... 
So let me see if I've got this straight. If we have a member who has a superannuation balance of over $3 million, what I do is I calculate the earnings on the excess balance that's over $3 million, and then the member pays that tax on those earnings at an additional 15%. Yep, you got it. Great. So when I keep reading in the newspaper or the paper <laughs> that members have with balances over $3 million, now will be subject to a 30% tax rate on earnings. That's not really accurate, is it? No, it's only the earnings on balances over $3 million that the member will have to pay tax on. Right. And it doesn't matter if some of those earnings are actually relating to um, pensions in the tax-free retirement phase. Yeah, no. Based on what we know so far, the additional tax will apply regardless of whether part or all of the members' benefits are actually in the tax-free retirement phase. So in that situation, obviously the fund's not paying any tax, mm. but the member still has to pay this 15% tax on the earnings attributable to balances over that $3 million threshold. So if the member was in accumulation phase, then part of their earnings are going to have an effective tax rate if you assume a 15% tax rate that the fund is paying and then this additional 15% tax. So yes, part of the earnings would be subject to an effective tax rate of 30%. But mm. if the member's fully in the retirement phase, and you'd have to have some unusual circumstances yeah, there. Right? Balance Trans exactly. Really, exactly. Yeah. But it, it is potentially possible if you've got something like a cap defined benefit income stream or something along those lines. Mm. Um, then if you do have a liability, it doesn't matter that you know these earnings are on assets that are in retirement phase, um, the liability is levied on the individual member at 15% and uh, and they need to pay it. Okay, got it. Now, you said previously that funds don't attribute income to individual members. So no. how are they calculating members' earnings on balances over $3 million? Yeah, and that's a really important concept um, to get across because for example, a large fund, we don't, when you have a member come into that fund, they might make a rollover or contribution. And what happens is that money that they've contributed, for example, just goes into the pool of assets that the fund holds for all members. It, it generates a return out of that, capital gains, income, rent, whatever. It pays tax on that. It's got expenses that goes out. And at the end of the day, you'll have an, a net value of assets. You've got to also take into account some realised and unrealised capital gains tax liability because of the, the accounting concepts with large funds. And you simply divide by the number of units and issues. So therefore, you don't actually attribute to income to any particular member. It's just their balance goes up and down with changes in the unit price. Okay. So this, however, is when where these proposals start to get interesting because if we if we don't do that and we're not going to change the system to do that, mm. how else do we calculate earnings, right? And basically what the government are proposing to do here is, is to calculate both the earnings and the tax according with a three-step process, okay. okay? So if we look at step one, and this is the calculation of the earnings, what we do is we calculate the member's total earnings across all their different super funds and accounts by simply looking at the difference between their current year total superannuation balance, and that is total superannuation balance as we know it. So we look at what their, uh, what their current year total superannuation balance was, and then we look 12 months prior to their previous 30 June total super balance, and the difference is the income or the earnings. I shouldn't say earn income, I should yeah, say earnings because it's a very different concept yeah. we're talking about here. This is not taxable income. Mm -hmm. So once we've identified the earnings based on 
the change in their total super balance values. What we then have got to do is we've got to go back and say, okay, well, that's all of their earnings on all of their benefits, right? So we've now got to look at what are the earnings attributable to balances over $3 million, right? So what we do is we take that current year total superannuation balance and then we subtract $3 million, which gives me my excess. And then I simply divide that excess by their current year total superannuation balance, which tells me X proportion or X percent of your total super, super balance is over and above $3 million. Once we've got that proportion, we can then easily multiply that proportion by their total earnings for the year. So that says of your total earnings, this amount relates to balances over and above $3 million. And then we just tax that at 15% and levy the member. Make it sound so easy. Mm, yeah, I know. <laughs> Simples. Simples. Um, well, do you want to give us a really simple example of how that might work? Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine we've fast forwarded to 25, 26. So remember once, we, firstly, none of these rules are in yet, right? Mm. Okay. So, and they're proposed, we don't even have draft legislation, don't have draft no. legislation right? So, um, so these rules are proposed to become effective 25, 26. So let's imagine we fast forward to 25, 26 and all these rules are in, right? Uh, and my total super balance at the start of the year, so on 1 July or effectively 30 June 2025, was $3 million. And then by the end of the year, at, by 30 June 2026, it had grown to $3.3 .3 million. Yeah. Right? So what I do there is I'm simply saying... $3.3 .3 million less $3 million, right, gives me $300,000. Now, what I also need to do here, and I, I just realised I forgot this step in step one, is I actually need to then control for contributions and withdrawals. So what do I mean by that? So withdrawals, that's going to artificially reduce, or it's not going to artificially, it's actually going to reduce my total superannuation balance if I withdraw money out. So therefore, that's going to play with my earnings calculations. So if I've had any withdrawals made during the year, I've got to add those withdrawals, withdrawals back in. Yeah. If I've had any contributions, that's going to make me look like I've got more earnings that mm -hmm. I should otherwise have. So we then have to deduct those contributions back out. In that case, it'll be the net value of the contribution. So if there's any contributions tax that applies, I've got to mm -hmm. take that into account, right? Yeah. Um, so let's just, if I go back and say, okay, so total super balance at the end of the year, $3.3 .3 million. At the start of the year, it was three. So the difference there is $300,000. Let's assume I haven't made any contributions or withdrawals during the year. So the difference mm -hmm. that I'm looking at is $300,000. Yeah. That's my total earnings, right? Then what I've got to do is I've got to say, okay, what proportion of that $300,000 relates to balances over and above $3 million? So I take 3.3, subtract off $3 million, which gives me $300,000. And then I divide by my 3.3 million which is my current super balance at the end of the year, which tells me 9.0, what is it, 9.1% yeah. uh, percent of my balance is over $3 million. So what that tells me is only 9.1% of that $300,000 worth of earnings is therefore going to be subject to this tax. So I multiply the 300 by 9.1 and that'll give me 27,300. And my tax liability is simply 15% of that 27300 27, which will be $4,095. And that will be issued to the member. Right. You can either pay it themselves or take it out of the super fund. Yep, yep. 
Great. All right. Um, so next question, if it's based on total super balance, then aren't we actually taxing unrealized oh, gains oh. if the balance goes up? We've read a bit about this in the press yes. recently. This is very, very controversial because normally we don't have the concept of taxing unrealized capital gains mm. in, in our tax act currently. Um, so this has got lots of people um, very hot under the collar. Um, but I suppose what the government's done here is, is they've looked at the different alternatives and the alternative which would avoid that situation is attributing all fund income to individual members, which would be incredibly costly. So I think the government's ruled that out because we don't want to put all these costs, massive costs on, you know, all these large funds and even in the SMSF se sector, but they'd probably put, be quite happy, but put all these costs on these large funds that are then being born, you know, these, these system change costs which would be borne by members that have, you know, $30,000 in super, not $3 million in mm. super, right? So it'd be borne be born by all members. Uh, and so I think what they've simply said there is, well, this this has to be the method that we're going to use, right? Now, when we think about that, what, what would be potentially another alternative? Another alternative might be, hey, let's just apply a deemed rate of return, right? And, well, when you look at that, it's just whether you're better off or worse off under a deemed rate of return just compares, depends on what that deemed rate of return is mm. compared to what the actual investment experience was for that particular member, mm -hmm. right? Um, and if the deemed rate of return is higher than your actual investment experience, then you're actually worse off by doing that. So I think, you know, that's probably another reason why the government didn't go down that track because they didn't want to start taxing people on income that they didn't actually earn. They wanted to try and look at the actual investment experience and tax that, you know, or apply tax based on that actual investment experience rather than some sort of deemed rate of return. So, you know, for me, I look at that and say, yeah, well, I don't, you know, if that deemed rate of return was, was higher than my actual investment experience, I don't want to pay tax on income I didn't actually earn. Unless they're going to pick a nice low deemed rate of return. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. Good. yeah well, guess what? Like pretty, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that raises an interesting question. What if you have a client whose total super balance actually goes down? So negative earnings. Yeah, that is a good question. Well, the proposals actually deal with that. So what they say is that in those situations, you would be able to carry forward those earnings losses that are attributable to balances over $3 million and then use those to offset future earnings um, at a later year, right? So, for example, let's just take if my total earnings was, let's say, $600,000 and the proportion of my total super balance uh, on 30 June was that was over $3 million was, let's say, 50%. So let's say, you know, I had $6 million fund or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got this um, $600,000 worth of earnings losses, then I can only carry forward the losses attributable to balances over 3 million. So that would be half of those losses. So I can carry forward $300,000 to a future year. Mm. However, there are some issues here as well. For example, what if the losses are incurred when the member balances were less than 3 million? So the way the proposed formulas work, it looks at the moment like you won't be able to carry forward the losses in that kind of situation. Mm. Yeah. 
Yes. So is that fair? We'll have to wait yeah, and see. We'll how We'll have to down. wait and see. There's a lot of consultation going on at the moment. I would mm. suggest there's probably lots of parts of the industry, probably very likely the SNSF part of the industry that would mm. would like to uh, have this issue addressed because they say it's we, we shouldn't be taxing unrealised capital gains. Yes. Yeah, and, and they have a point, but it's just then how do you do it? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, okay, so what other as other aspects of the rules do we need further clarification on? Probably quite a few things, I would imagine. Yeah, okay. I think the first big issue is uh, what amounts are going to be included in the definition of withdrawals and contributions for this earnings calculation. So as I said before, when I, I talked about step one, I actually left off a really important <laughs> part there, right? So what you do is you look at current super balance, you deduct off, the previous year's current uh, prior year's total super balance, yeah. and then what you do is you add back in withdrawals yeah. and deduct out the net value of contribution. So if I've paid, let's say, I put in ten thousand dollars and paid fifteen hundred dollars contributions tax, then I'm deducting back out the eight thousand five hundred net. Yeah. Right? Okay. So um, the the really important issue there is that we potentially really need to look at the definition of contributions and withdrawals. Um, as this could really have a significant impact on the amount of tax someone may need to pay. So for example, if we think about withdrawals, if I take a lump sum withdrawal, this would obviously impact my total super balance and make it look like I have less earnings. Yeah. Makes sense? Like yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so to control for this, we need to add those withdrawals back in to get an accurate earnings amount, as I said. Um, but in this case, should withdrawals also include pension payments? So should it just be lump sum withdrawals or should it also include other amounts that are going to impact upon total super balance? As I said, pension payments. Well, clearly, they're impacting on the total super balance at the end of the year. And so therefore, distorting the amount of earnings I'm deemed to have under this, under this methodology. Um, so do I need to add those back in. So mm. will a withdrawal include pension payments? It's not really clear from that Treasury fact sheet, is it? No, no. Uh, and what about other amounts that could potentially impact a member's balance? So Division 293 tax liabilities. Mm. What about amounts transferred to a spouse under contribution splitting rules? So, you know, I've gone and put my SG and salary sacrifice in and then I split off a certain amount to my spouse. Mm. Well, that's coming out of my super balance and going into their super balance. So should that need to be added back in. Um, what about amounts transferred to an ex-spouse under divorce and super rules? So none of the paper that we've seen so far, it just talks about, you know, adding back in withdrawals. But what do you mean by a withdrawal? Is it just a lump sum super withdrawal or is it these other amounts as well? And I think that's going to be really, really important. Yeah. So I guess the similar things with contributions as well. What are they going to include as a contribution? Yeah, well, obviously, we, we're going to look here and say, okay, contributions, um, these need to be stripped back out. Now, mm -hmm. think about the types of contributions that these clients can make. They can't make non-concessional contributions, right? Their total super balance is up around $3 million. That's well and truly above the, the transfer balance cap currently at $1.7 million. So their non-concessional cap is going to be zero, right? So they can't make a non-concessional. But think about the types of contributions that are completely, you know, total super balances is irrelevant. So we've got downsizer contributions. Yeah. Um, we've also got um, contributions under the lifetime CGT cap. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, also, we've got personal injury, but personal injury contributions are a little bit interesting. They're already taken into account 
and calculating total sort of balance. So I think they're already factored into the excluded, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we can make those types of other downsides of small business CGT contributions. But what about other amounts that we may not normally think of as a contribution, but would absolutely increase a member's total super balance and therefore distort the earnings amount? Mm, like what kind of things? Okay, the big one I can think of is insurance proceeds, mm. right? So when you go and look at the, the tax ruling that defines what a contribution is, um, it gives you an example that insurance proceeds are not a contribution, mm. right? Because it's just, it's just an amount of money that the, the trustee is receiving under mm. the terms of a commercial contract, right? Um, so in this case, if a member has, let's say, TPD insurance and super, and they suffer an insured event, the insurance proceeds are going to get credited to their account, but they're not a contribution, but they will certainly increase the total super balance and could potentially you know, be treated as earnings and subject to the additional tax. So for example, let's take a client that had a total super balance at the start of the year of, let's say, exactly $3 million, and they receive a $1 million insurance payout from a TPD policy held through the super fund. So obviously, you know, very sick, permanently incapacitated, um, probably never working again, and they receive a $1 million insurance payment. Now, let's just assume that all the members' benefits were still sitting in the super fund at the end of the year. In that case, their total super balance would now be, if we ignore other investment returns, just make it really simple, would now be $4 million, right? Which in that situation, when we look at their total super balance at the beginning of the year was $3 million, total super balance at the end of the year is $4 million. Uh, You strip, uh, strip out any contributions but you haven't made any contributions because mm. insurance proceeds are not a contribution, right? So you've now got earnings of a million dollars, but that's all coming from the insurance proceeds, mm. right? Yeah. So in that situation, um, if you then apply, you know, that three-step process, mm. you end up with the member, okay, what have they got here? $4 million, Their 25% of their benefit is over $3 million. So therefore, 25% of a million dollars of their earnings, $250,000 is attributable to balances over $3 million. Um, So $250,000 worth of insurance proceeds are now considered to be earnings and are gonna be taxed at 15%, which would result in a tax liability of 37,500. This is a client that needs all of that money to actually support themselves in the future. This is not a, you know, some sort of fat cat with lots of money in super, they need that money. So I actually think this issue really needs to be resolved in the final legislation. I I think it would be grossly unfair to actually tax someone's TPD proceeds that they need to survive for 20, 30, 40, 50 years based on their age when they become permanently incapacitated and you go and tax that because they're deemed to be someone with a very high super balance. Okay, so that's that's definitely something we're going to have to look at, isn't it? Mm. The um, insurance proceeds. Are there any other kind of issues like that that the government would need to take into account? Yeah, well, what about a death benefit taken as a pension? Mm. That's not a contribution, right? So that will certainly increase their total super balance and therefore could count as earnings unless they're included in the concept of a contribution and therefore stripped it back out. Mm. Um, other amounts that could potentially also cause issues are reserve allocations. Although, you know, um, maybe not such a massive issue, um, as well as a member's share, and this is an interesting one, a member's share of an outstanding loan amount 
under a limited recourse borrowing arrangement where the loan was taken out on or after the 1st of July 2018 and the member had uh, satisfied a condition of release or the lender was a related party. Now, you might be looking at going, what? How does that all work? Yeah, wouldn't there be a liability then? Yeah, so how, how, does, how does the t total super balance go up? Mm. Well, there's a special rule that says if you take out a loan on or after the 1st of July 2018 mm. and the member uh, is, or a member of the fund is unrestricted, non uh, sorry, satisfied a condition of release mm. and has unrestricted non-preserved benefits, um, or the member is, the lender is a related party, then the government was concerned that people are going to start using loans to kind of game the contribution cap system. So they yeah. said in those situations, no, you actually have to count the member's share of the outstanding loan amount towards their total super balance. So in a way, you ignore the liability and include that loan amount in the calculation of their total super balance. So that could mm. count as earnings and it could also push them up another $3 million. They can need lots of new rules to strip out all these things, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so are there any potential tips and traps associated with these rules that you can see? Well, um, yes, there are. So, for example, one tip might be to make withdrawals to reduce or avoid any potential tax liability. Hmm, okay, so I'm making a withdrawal to get me below $3 million? Yep. Yep, okay. Sounds like a good strategy, although now I've just pulled my money out of super is that right? <laughs> well, you might be sitting there thinking, but hang on, don't we add withdrawals back in? Oh, yeah, should be thinking that. But if you're under $3 million at the end of the year... Yes, that's the, that's the critical issue. So, yes, when we calculate our earnings, we add back in the value of our withdrawals. So if I make a withdrawal, it doesn't have any impact on the amount of my earnings for the year, or that's the, you know, the way the system's meant to work. Mm. But remember, if I make a withdrawal, that's going to reduce my total super balance at the end of the year. So therefore, the proportion of my benefit that is over $3 million mm. has either been reduced or down or you reduced it to zero. Yeah. Yeah. So by taking, let's say you had, you had $3.3 million mm -hmm. in super, but then on the 29th of June, you go and pull out $400,000 mm -hmm. as a lump sum. Yeah. Okay, so yes, I add that $400,000 back in for my earnings calculation. Mm -hmm. But when I look at the proportion of my earnings that are now over $3 million at the end of the year, well, they're not, they're yeah. under, yeah. right? So therefore, my tax theoretically would be zero in that situation. Mm -hmm. But the key issue here is, well, yes, you've just pulled money out of super and yes, you've avoided this tax liability, but now you've got $400,000 in your own hands sitting outside super. What are you going to do with that, right? We can't get it back in. Well, you can't get it back in and you're going to go and invest it and guess what? You're going to pay tax at your marginal rate. Mm. So is that are the smart thing off? to do? Are you, mm. are you better off just leaving it there? Some people will pull it out. Some people will go, you know what? I'm just happy to pay the tax because that's still a concessionally taxed outcome for me. And I, I guess looking at it on the flip side, I suppose a trap would be making a large contribution just before the end of the financial year, which would increase the proportion of my earnings that is subject to tax if it's pushing me over that $3 million mark. Yes, spot on. So, But remember, 
these types of clients can't make non-concessional contributions as their total sort of balance is too high, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they can make contributions under the lifetime CGT cap, which is that that cap now is up around $1.6 million somewhere, mm -hmm. um, as well as downsize of contributions. Right. So there are still a few contributions they could make. Yeah, so them over the three you, million. you just think about that. So an advisor recommends a client makes a small business CGT contribution on the last day of the financial year, mm -hmm. and that takes them from, let's say, $2.5 million to $3.5 million or $4 million because it's up around $1.5 million. And all of a sudden... Another tax bill. Yeah. Mm. So you would need to obviously make the client aware that that advice one. is going to have this consequence. Mm. Or maybe even just make the contribution a day later because... You can. Yeah. Can. Yeah. yeah. But it's then going to cause the same problem the next year, but at least mm. you've deferred one year mm. of having the problem. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, how about... Another issue or a curveball, um, how is it going to work when a member dies and they had a total super balance over $3 million? Oh. Are, they, are they still going to have to pay the tax even though they're no longer with oh, us? This is a really interesting question, Kim. Um, we don't know yet, but potentially yes, right? Now, which you might think of, how, how on earth can you tax dead people? Well, if you look at how Division 293 tax works, which is, as I said before, kind of the model, mm. the ATO can actually levy a deceased member's Division 293 tax liability on their legal personal representative, i.e. the executor of their estate. Right. So why not this tax? And mm. we've now got a precedent for it, so it could well be that, yeah, it has, still has to be paid, but by the LPR. Seems a bit rough, doesn't it? So I guess mm. in that case, it'd be really important to pay out the death benefits before 30 June if you can, so as to reduce their total yep. super balance so below that, the 3 mil. Use that withdrawal strategy that we're talking about, yep. Um, especially where they had life insurance. Oh, right? yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Which, like we talked about before mm. with the TPD example, that could actually look like it was earnings and increase their total super balance, that life insurance. So oh, yeah. you really want to pay that out before 30 June. Yeah, but when you think... Oh, so... Obviously, absolutely, right? So if, especially if there's a large insurance amount and there wasn't some sort of adjustment to treat life insurance proceeds as a contribution, mm. um, then that's potentially going to cause you an issue because those life insurance proceeds will look like earnings. Um, and if that death benefit hasn't been paid out and still sitting there on 30 June, mm. then the LPR might be getting a sizable liability, right? Mm. Um, now, obviously, in that situation, you want to get it out before the pay the death benefit out before 30 June, right? But what if the client dies towards the end of the financial year? That's not yeah. always going to be... Practicable. From, yeah, practicable <laughs> or possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we have to wait and see on that front, but potentially it could apply to death benefits and be payable by the LPR. And I guess if they take a big income stream, a death benefit income stream, that's another issue. Yeah, well, mm. that would be another issue, as I talked about before. You know, if we take it as a, as a death benefit income stream, then that death benefit income stream looks like earnings, yeah. unless there's some, some sort of adjustment for it. Mm. And, yeah, yeah, just have to wait and see. Wait and see. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's change the topic. Is there any issues or strategies that advisors should be thinking about now in relation to these changes at this early stage where we're just sort of We've just got um, fact sheets and things at the moment, don't we? We don't have any actual yeah, legislation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't stress that enough. This is all just proposed. We don't even have draft legislation, let alone a bill. Mm. Um, so at the moment, I think I would be focused on identifying those clients um, that are potentially impacted 
and making sure that they understand how the rules are proposed to work as it may not be as bad as you know as they think if they've just been reading the papers and being told that oh if you've got a balance over three million dollars you're going to have to pay 30 percent which yeah, sounds like you're going to have to pay 30 percent on all of your income for the year which is not yeah. the way it's proposed to work as i as i said before mm. um i suppose then what am i doing i'm sitting tight um i'm waiting for more detail i'm not necessarily pulling money out i'm not delaying or not putting money in um, I think the key thing here to understand is the government is actually consulting with the industry at the moment so depending on the extent to which they want to listen um, and depending on the kinds of ideas that are being put to them about don't do it like this maybe do it like that mm. um, who knows what we're going to get so yeah I would be yeah it's yeah. a bit early to be going and implementing strategies and remember this isn't due to come into effect until 1 July 2025 for the 25 26 year. So, what's that about 27 28 months, something along those lines? Yeah, um, and there's an election before then, <laughs> yeah. so there's plenty of time um, to be thinking that, about mm -hmm. that. But mm -hmm. once we've got the final legislation, that's mm -hmm. when you start to think strategies okay, well, if I've got a spouse that's well up and above and one well below, probably should be doing this from a transfer balance cap perspective anyway, mm -hmm. but it's some sort of spouse equalisation strategy yeah. involving potentially non-concessional contributions depending on the spouse's age and their total super balance and all that sort of stuff. Um, so to try and equalise their um, straight withdrawals if you think the money's better off outside super than in. Equalisation's um, good for lots of reasons and yeah. it's going to be good for this if yeah, it comes in yeah. like this. It, it, it'll just depend on what makes sense for the client but once mm -hmm. you know we know the rules and we, we can identify those clients that we've really got to do something then we start thinking about what's the best thing to do. Okay well thank you very much Craig I think that about sums it up. Enlightened now. No problems Kimbo. And thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.